Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Recently, I was in New York City, and I had the chance to go over to the Warner Brothers mixing facility there and sit down on the dub stage with my old friend Skip Levesay. We were there to talk about the tragedy of Macbeth, but we ended up having a really wide-ranging conversation about the creative process around sound. And if you don't know Skip, you most certainly have heard Skip's work before. This is just a super partial list of some of the movies that Skip has worked on in a very long and illustrious career. Uh, He worked on Little Women, Roma, The Hunger Games movies, It Might Get Loud, Big Fish, E Tu Mama Tambien, Casino, Malcolm X, Cape Fear, and The Silence of the Lambs, just to, just to name a few. He's well known for his longtime collaboration with Alfonso Cuaron, and he won the Academy Award for Best Sound for his collaboration with Alfonso on Gravity. And uh, I would say, though, if Skip is known for one thing, for any one thing, it would be his very long collaboration and remarkable collaboration with the Coen Brothers, uh, which goes all the way back to the Coen Brothers' very first movie, Blood Simple, in 1985. Skip has had perfect attendance uh, working on every single one of the Coen Brothers, starting off as the sound supervisor and then uh, as the sound supervisor and the re-recording mixer. So uh, this is actually Skip's fifth appearance on the Dolby Institute podcast. And um, if you haven't had a chance, I really suggest you go back and take a listen to some of the, these previous conversations. I'll tell you, um, he was on episode 54, where we talk about uncut gems uh, with the Safdie brothers and with the movie's composure, composer, Daniel Lopatin. We actually did two conversations about Roma. Uh, episode 36 was a sit down that Skip and I had at the New York Film Festival to talk about the movie. And then in episode 46, we had a bigger panel discussion, including Alfonso Cuaron, to talk about the remarkable sound work in Roma. And then this is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Uh, Number 29 was a conversation that we had at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. It was me and Skip and the composer Carter Burwell sitting down to talk about their remarkable collaboration with the Coen Brothers. They both worked on every single one of the Coen Brothers movies. And so we showed some clips and talked about uh, those films and it was really uh, it was a really a fun conversation. I-, I love sitting down and talking with Skip because he's a great storyteller and he is totally willing to dish up the dirt on the creative process. And he does that in this episode. I think you'll um, be really uh, uh, excited to hear some of the stuff he has to say. We talk about uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is a really remarkable sounding film. We talk about his creative process and how he explored to try to find the right approach on the film. And he talks pretty candidly about you know, uh, his first pass that he, he screened for Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand, and uh, it did not go well. And so it was a, ended up being a, a, an interesting conversation that we had about the creative process and, and especially what to do when it doesn't go well um, and how to recover from that. And so I really appreciate Skip's willingness to kind of go there and have that conversation. In addition to that, uh, we talk about working with first time directors and the difference in approach to sound between uh, narrative films versus documentary films. Uh, It's a pretty wide ranging conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. I had one of my most fun days uh, in this crazy business on this stage with you, I, I came in here to visit you at one point. This was a few years ago, several years ago, and you were working on the Ben Stiller movie, um, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, Mitty. Mm-hmm. And uh, like that day or the day before, um, the David Bowie people had delivered to you all the stems for Space Oddity, and you just had you had it up with all the separation. We were, you, you were just, and we were just soloing stuff. You were just, you know, like let's listen to the guitars and it was like it was just so much fun because you were you were mixing that in atmos and so you were moving stuff around in the atmos field and it was a fun day it was a fun day that was a great day that was a great experience that's one of those like working on sergeant peppers basically as i'm sure those guys must feel like that every single day even though they some of those guys were there for the real event but uh yeah that was super exciting and and being able to 
the song is so well integrated in the movie. It so beautifully um, unfolds from the humble beginnings of uh, a bar into right. Ben Stiller jumping onto a helicopter and jumping out into the ocean. All that he did all that stuff himself, uh, except for I'm not sure not sure if he jumped in the ocean or not. But anyway, yeah, it was a great sequence though. And you're right, and the song song worked perfectly. Spent in it. Spectacular. Yeah, we had Ben was standing here at one point, and and I was we were playing that sequence, and and I just soloed one of the tracks. I soloed like the t there are two vocals, and I soloed the two vocals, and so you hear David Bowie two times, and and. I'm looking at Ben, and he's like, wait, what? <laughs> I guess he didn't know. We hadn't told him yet that we had all the separation, and we did the same thing. We went through and listened to all the separate tracks. Smiles, a lot of smiles. Yeah. I think I just, you know, I became aware of you as a sound designer, kind of foremost, or supervising sound editor. Um, and, you know, I, th I, I remember... Uh, at Skywalker, uh, Gary Rydstrom had a, he had a, like a clip reel. I think he called it great moments of sound design that I wish I had done. <laughs> Did you ever see this thing? Did he ever show it to you? No. I think I'm remembering this correctly. He started off that reel with the sequence in Barton Fink where Barton shows up at the hotel. Welcome to the Hotel Earl. May I help you, sir? I'm checking in, Barton Fink. But it's interesting to me, do you miss doing sound design and effects work? Uh, it kind of for where you are in your career now? Do you, you occasionally get back under the hood and dabble a little bit, or, or, or do you really just leave that to the, to the effects team? Well, I, like we're working on a movie now, which is my kind of, my, my uh, meat and potatoes. It's a quite abstract. Uh, Adam Sandler's playing a spaceman. He's going into space in uh, a strange craft to investigate this purple cloud that's happening. And um, without giving away too much, there's a creature uh, who's voiced by Paul Dano. Okay. The filmmaker is uh, Johan Rink, who made the Chernobyl. He was the director of the Chernobyl series, which fantastic and great sound design. Amazing in that show. Amazing sound design. So I was super um, interested when I heard he was making a movie. I got a call and I did a uh, phone interview and I got the job. And he seems like a very interesting filmmaker, based on that, but also based on his um, approach to this material. It's from a book. Yeah. And it's not funny. It's not a comedy. Did I say that? No. No, it's not a comedy. So, um, so we're here. We are. We we had to kind of hurry up and get started. Now it's been released a little bit, but in the meantime, we we hired some people to start recording effects and um, to get going because Paul and I are busy on this movie. Right. So right this moment, we didn't know we were supposed to be getting a mix ready for a screening, but um, anyway, so. We got started, and now we have a little more time, but Paul and I spent a whole bunch of time working together on ideas and listening to stuff and making notes for our crew who are gonna be recording and editing another whole crew. And um, so I, I do really enjoy it, and I guess if I had my choice, I would be doing that and not, at least part of the time. And maybe do both. Maybe do some sound design and editing and also do some some mixing as well. But I, I actually don't like mixing effects. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to have someone else do that part. I, I didn't mix that effects on very many movies. Like I mixed effects on Men in Black and um, a bunch of other movies. So I mixed some of the, I mixed effects on um, Oh Brother, but uh, in general, um, 
I mostly mix dialogue and music. I just kind of being working in New York, it's mostly dialogue work here. Right. Oftentimes, you know, the the majority of the work is in the dialogue side, and that was the one thing where my my filmmakers said, "Step up and learn how to do that." So. I think I learned, and I would I would always give uh, credence to and give uh, um, condolences to um, Andy Nelson, who taught me that do as little as you can, and above all, don't kill the patient. It's kind of the Hippocratic oath. Yeah, do no way. harm. Do no harm. Yeah. And um, having worked with other mixers who have a different approach uh, and witnessed the outcome, I was very keen to see another another approach, what that would be. Yeah, and I witnessed Andy working on a couple of movies, and I heard Gary talking about the way he worked, and also Craig Hennigan. And um, I'm like, you know what? That sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> let's try that. Let's let's do that until it doesn't work anymore. Right. So I mean, that's my approach to dialogue and to music. But I think I have a kind of a cheat because I, I know so much about dialogue editing because mm -hmm. I did it on film and on systems for years. So um, I do a lot of stuff editing-wise. I mix with editing tools in many cases. So um, I like, for instance, as an example, I use um, I don't use much or any compression. So I do it with clip gain and volume graphs and EQ. And I don't use a de-esser. I do that almost exclusively with clip gain. So um, so you're mixing like a dialogue editor. Yeah. Yeah. I've dragged the mixing world down into the <laughs> editing, <laughs> the bowels of editing. Well, but you can't, I mean, I can't argue with the, uh, uh, you know, with the product. It was, you know, just listening to uh, Macbeth, which we'll talk about later, that dialogue is just, I mean, well, first of all, it must have been extremely well recorded during production. Is that Peter Kurland? Peter Kurland. <clears throat> uh, long time uh, production sound mixer for the Coen brothers. <clears throat> but the dialogue uh, in Macbeth is just, it's pristine and it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, it was beautifully recorded in most cases. Uh, although um, one of the main players is kind of low voice like me so that was shot on a soundstage and there's a lot of noise uh, mm. to contend with so there were there's a lot of things it's, it is mostly a production track there's a little bit of adr um it, most of the adr was to change uh, pronunciation or performance some nuance that joel and uh, denzel had worked out but uh i had to raise his track quite a lot because Denzel is a he's a he's a soft speaker. He's like me. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's can be loud. I, I can never be as loud as he is, but <laughs> his normal in this movie at least, he has a, the ability to talk pretty low. And yeah. So um one of the things about one of the challenges of the movie for from between Joel and I was to figure out is it a movie or is it a theater? And theater as as Everyone knows Shakespeare in the theater is broadcast to the audience or to the masses, right. in fact. And you the, you have to use a stage whisper when you're whispering, and you have to speak plainly when you're not whispering. And that's not exactly the film style. So sure. A lot of the movie ends up coming to arriving to the desk in film style quite low, and I had to raise it a lot. So we, we did a lot of stuff, which I've never really done before, where we just raised and raised and raised. And given a new set of challenges. Because you're also raising the noise floor and all that stuff as well. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, the uh, again, uh, hello, Andy. Basically, um, I kept going. I just kept going and trying to get it into sort of a groove. And then... Once we had everything going, and, and that, that that is a reality. When everything else is playing, some things that you thought were super important turn out to be not important at all. So um, there was quite a few things that I did to the track with EQ that I've never done before to anything. And, and the cause is once it's all playing, mm, that thing is still hanging out. Yeah. So let me just take that one thing and try to deal with that one thing. 
So wrestling that one thing down, a tone or a wind or a movement, you know, um, if we can just unwind that, then it actually sounds pretty normal. So as long as you don't listen to the dialogue stem without everything else, um, and that's how we basically approached the final mix was let it be big and bold. And um, when something is sticking out there, let's figure out, put a gust of wind or a, right. a foley, a footstep or something. We really did like the old fashioned kind of hide and seek sort of uh, approach. It was not at all the movie that I was expecting. <laughs> Uh, I think I said this to you before. I was kind of, you know, when I heard that 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 you know that Joel was going to make the tragedy of Macbeth. That kind of, I, I don't know why, but I was expecting something. I was expecting something that was kind of epic and maybe like kind of Game of Thrones kind of size and scale. And it's not that at all. It's very. I mean, you use the term theatrical. I think one of the things that kind of I felt when I was watching it was it it looks like a movie from the '40s or '50s. Um, there are backdrops, very clearly backdrops. You know, it's it, it it feels like a throwback, and even like the aspect ratio is is sort of kind of television four by three or Academy ratio or one to one and one point one to whatever it ended up being. But um, I'm kind of curious. Did I mean? Do you have those kind of conversations with Joel about like why did he why did he take that particular kind of like almost kind of a seventh seal sort of approach to the visuals of the storytelling? Well, I think, uh, like, you know, having worked with Joel for so many years, this is, a, I think, depending on the math you want to do, it's either the 20th or the 22nd movie that we've done together. And it's been over 35 years. So yeah. I know, I mean, I can tell by the look on his face, you know, what, which way to go, basically. And um, when he's talking about it's a stage play, it's Shakespeare, it's the words... I know that what he's saying is we need to make this seem like a performance, right. like the audience is sitting in front of the actors watching a performance. And when he's saying, you know, it needs to be more abstract and have fun with it, then I know that he's saying we're, we're following that line too closely. Let's open it up and let, you know, let the thing fly through the room, et cetera. And... Um, it's not unlike the challenges that we have on all of their movies where we have we're trying to get the most interesting thing we can find no matter what rules we have to break or conventions are being rent um and there was a <laughs> okay well i'll tell you a story uh so covid notwithstanding joel and um fran hadn't seen the movie projected and we hadn't had a spotting session. They were in California. I was here, and COVID. Right. So, we talked on the phone a bunch, and um, we there was a um, another whole bunch of people working on the film here in New York and in L.A. I think, and um, I was I wasn't really getting. I couldn't really get quite get the idea that we were actually going to go through bit by bit, and we were just going to change it based on what seemed right on that phrase. And you, Shakespeare is sort of wonderful in that you can, it is broken down in so many ways, in so many places. And we had the Folgers um, document here on stage and Folgers has Shakespeare on this side and the the uh, explanation right next to it. So it goes line by line and everything is covered. Everything is, you know, there's no mystery. It's basically explaining what the speech is. Okay. It's the cliff notes. So. Right. And, you know, the, the slang, of, most importantly, is addressed. And um, the particulars, I think the, the particulars, you don't need a book to know what's happening in the show. But um, I think it, it, we kind of approached the movie in the same way, where we broke down bit by bit what makes this work best, what either encourages or reveals the discussion, the talking, to the audience, what makes the, the language and the slang more accessible or more f kind of beautifully um, obtuse and uh, unclear. And we, <laughs> so we, we basically, Joel set up a, a series of conventions that were almost shot by shot, and then we proceeded to unwind them and break them and reinvent them throughout the whole film. Mm. Anyway, so starting that off, 
um, I said, you know what? I tell you what, let's take everything we have. And we do this quite often. We'll do a tent mix. We'll watch the movie. I'll just do it myself. You don't have to come. I know you're too busy. And I know it would be too hard for you to sit and watch me labor over something so raw. So I'll just do a version. And we'll get together in L.A. I'll come out. We'll go on a dub stage. We went to Fox. And it wasn't Andy's stage, but it was next door. And we watched the movie through, just me and Joel and Fran. And uh, I could tell it wasn't going well. Really? <laughs> I was really... I, what I said to Joel was, I'm going to make the biggest, most bombastic version so we can see how clearly wrong that is. And we'll know, we'll know based on that version what not to do. But I also thought that some of the ideas were actually kind of fun and good. Well, when, when you say that, are you talking about like it was, it was effects heavy, there was a, a lot of you know, whooshes and, 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 and sound designing moments? Or what do you mean by biggest bombastic? Well, okay, so it's two things. One is we had made quite a lot of sort of tone, sort of ambient, uh, yeah. windy sort of stuff. And uh, Craig Berkey was working off of... Uh, Basically, off of No Country, I think you know where we where he made a, a phenomenally great assortment of interesting winds. Um, so we had winds that. and tones because in that movie, famously, there was no score, even though there are, are a, 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 a few cues that were very subtly worked in. But that was so. You're saying that you had built a library of ominous tones, you know, freakish winds and things, and that that kind of went into this track. Well, he, he, what Craig had done for that movie was make things that were kind of super real. So they were they were a bit exaggerated, but you couldn't really put your finger on it. So, And I think Craig probably used some of those sounds and some other sounds to do a similar thing for the atmosphere of uh, Macbeth. And then I, for my part, just put a ton of <laughs> reverb. You know, I basically made the voices sound like they were in those spaces. Right. And seemed like a good idea at the time but uh so here i am sitting at the console and and joel and fran are sitting behind me watching the movie and in a room this size and uh i could tell my spidey sense made my hair stand up and i said oh let's take a little break here so i just said stop and and i turned around and looked at them and they were like deer in that deer on the highway basically <laughs> Like what, did, like, what did you do to my movie? Kind of kind of look? They, Fran is so wonderful. She basically said, well, that sure is exciting. And <laughs> <laughs> they're very generous, the two of them. I've known them for a long time, so they, they weren't mad at me. They were just surprised, you know, how wrong you could be. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but, you know, that's a valuable experiment. I, we do that all the time. You know, you don't know how far is too far until you go there. Right. And you don't know if too far is not good until you find out one way or the other. So, yeah. you know, when people say, oh, this should be much louder. And so I always make it a lot louder. Much louder, right. Yeah. It's like, well, not that loud. Okay. <laughs> We've established here and here, you know, so it needs to be. So... But in fact, what Joel wanted, and we did this as it was such an interesting experiment because we did change the balance extremely in the other way. So that the talking is quite dry. Right. And it is like actors on a stage in front of you in a very dry theater. Right. So it, it's very bold and very kind of unvarnished. And we used a little bit of reverb here and there where it helped uh, sell our thing we wanted to do, but um, we came way off of that idea. And and it was a super valuable, it was indelibly printed on our brains, 
that what that would be like. So we didn't, we never needed to ask. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. So uh, that I think I think it was a good, a valuable experiment. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I you know I think I think people kind of presume that you know with where you are in your career and the movies that you've worked on you know and you know uh, having your academy award for gravity and I, I i think that people probably presume that you just effortlessly hit the home run every time you come up to the plate um well, so that's it's true <laughs> but it's 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 what it's, do you mean? it's very gratifying to hear that you know it's it's you're well first of all you're pushing yourself and you're trying new things and it occasionally doesn't work um i but that kind of le leads me into uh Kind of a line of question i was really curious to to talk with you about um you know you and i have talked in the past about you know most film schools don't do a, a good job teaching about sound and certainly don't prepare people to go into a career in sound but one of the one of the things that i've really been fascinated by is is like how people learn the soft skills that are incredibly important to this part of our business and one of the things that i've always kind of thought about you and respected and admired about you is your ability to run the room and the way you run your stage because directors are often very skittish nervous creatures and especially at this stage, because you know this is the last thing that happens to the movie before it goes out in the world like i feel like there's always <laughs> there's always another like point in the process where the film could get saved you know when we, when we put the music in then everything will be fine you know like you know when we'll, we'll edit some more and it'll get better but like we're on the mixing stage it's really like yeah this is the, this is the way the movie is going to be uh and so i just i, I really wanted to uh, kind of just get your thoughts on like how did you how do you develop the skills about running the stage keeping the directors calm and especially when things don't go well <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, well, the two things I am most thankful to Andy and the other mixers that I've been around in my career when I was in the backfield, not at the desk, is watching them uh, handle the situations and help the filmmakers get through the day and the rough spots and, um, and of course, enjoy the high spots as well. And for the filmmakers, it's, it's super exciting as well as horribly awful you know, sure. studio executives everywhere you look, you yeah. know, behind every door. Yeah. But so that's, it's a big part, like you say, because it comes at the end. And it used to be that there was one more thing, you know, the timing, the color timing and the, the, the making the prints and you'd finally get a print on the stage. A black track print was so exciting. But now they don't come to the mix because they're doing the color timing. Right. So... Even that is done. So we really are the last thing. And when the when the tail crawl music song arrives, they listen once and they're out the door moving on to their next project because right. that's it. There's nothing else except for the premiere. Yeah. So um, thank you to Andy and Gary and Kevin O'Connell, who's an absolute genius at uh, wrangling all the forces involved. And Lee Dichter, of course, who was also just a super charming fun guy to be doing this last step with but um what i guess one of the answer the, well, one of the answers is being aware and listening and um the keep the people who know how to do it hear everything that everybody says and filter that in and and make a combination a combo pack of all those comments on every pass uh, yeah the the music guy likes it louder, so let me raise that one part there. And the director doesn't like the ending, so I'm just going to duck that. So you're listening to these comments, and you're doing that in your passes uh, without being told, okay, let's go back and lower the bell there. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've heard them t discussing it. You've heard them in the back of the room whispering it, and you start working on something. And then it, the, it just um, takes, the, takes the gas out of the bag and lets everyone kind of relax a little bit. And the same thing goes for the, the amount that you're doing it. You know, doing outrageous stuff, super loud things, and um, playing, playing, trying to play stuff at a reasonable level. I mean, we always really try to mix the, make a pass through the whole movie so the filmmakers and everyone else in the room is not having to endure, you know, massaging EQ on the 
cloth track um, mm-hmm. uh, over and over again. It just it's not a satisfying, fun way to spend the day. Day. Right. I mean, it's like I can't say I enjoy it that much either. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we just have to get through, um, and some stuff is actually you can kind of blast through and it sounds fine, and because it's probably not that important anyway. But um, within all those parts and moving parts, there's stuff that needs to be pulled out, and the filmmakers are always happy to to hear it and then say, "Can you just lower it?" And there's there's no harm in that. But um, it is it is um, the two things I I dread the most are. Um, the first day of the mix and the second day <laughs> because uh, I used to sit behind Tom Fleischman and Lee Dichter. Those are the guys that I sat with most. When and, they were mixing the tracks that you had cut. And they're cut, they're working on the movie that I've been working on for weeks and, and you know, we have all these big ideas and I know the filmmakers' ideas and wishes and I'm watching those guys work through the tracks and, and my... <laughs> I was always um, surprised how clever they were. And I was always shocked that I was going to be sitting in that chair. And like I would say, I actually said to Lee, how do you know what to do? And he said, well, I don't know. And you're just kind of winging it, basically. And all you're really doing is you just keep changing the boundaries a little bit. And if you can do it without actually saying, how's that? Right. You know. You, you really want to get something going. And, of course, Joel and Ethan, um, we've always worked this way where they, they want to see what we have in mind and they want to see it. And so they always sort of, they're happy to let you run with whatever your ideas are. So I'm always working in a place where I keep going. I keep pursuing it. And then they say, okay, that sounds good. I don't like, to, I, I think it's actually kind of wrong to say, what do you think? You know, mm-hmm. how's that? I mean, if they didn't say that sounds good, that means it didn't it sound good, good yet. Yeah. <laughs> so keep going. <laughs> Unlike the acting problem where if you don't get it on take one, you start working on another movie on take two. Right. The they're they're letting you do your job until they say, Okay, I like the way that sounds. Yeah. And um, so you can always tell when people are paying attention to the room. When they stop and start working on something else, or when they turn around and say, "Is that good for you?" Right. You don't. I don't think Andy's ever said, "Is that good for you?" That's interesting. Yeah, they'll tell you I it's not good. He'll find it. Yes. <laughs> or, or as Clint Eastwood famously said, you know, let's not overthink this. You know. So, there, of course, there's a hundred ways to skin the cat. Yeah. And as times multiply that times a thousand directors and but I think in general helping the filmmaker be happy and then making keep working on stuff until you think it sounds right then I think you're on the right path yeah path to to success yeah you've been work you you also do a lot of work with uh, young directors and even a few you know first timers Um, how is that experience for you kind of uh, teaching them about this part of the process um well that's a it's a wrangling issue you know and that's one of the things that you learn is that uh filmmakers of all age enjoy to be uh cuddled you know right and the worst thing you can do to a young filmmaker is make them aware that you're not a young filmmaker that you're an old filmmaker and i i get i get trapped by telling a story and then i realize halfway through the story that like this is so wrong, you know. I'm just what, showing, this, this filmmaker wasn't even alive when I when when about the story I'm telling right now. Don't know, don't care. Shut up, <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> and I, it's um, some people like you know. Um, I have a friend who's doing a TV series, and he just he's digging every time I see him. He's digging about what can what can you tell me about that, and and he loves all the stories. But I think most young filmmakers don't want to hear the stories and I think if you treat them like they're the you're working with Martin Scorsese right you are Martin Scorsese you're the filmmaker you're the director so that's your that's your role I'm the mixer yeah tell me what to do I think most filmmakers and young or old enjoy that that kind of hierarchy yeah really 
You've worked with a lot. I mean, obviously, huge directors. You mentioned Scorsese, obviously, the Coen brothers, you know, Jonathan Demme. Uh, you know, what makes a director good about sound, savvy about sound? I think most directors have like a point of view about sound. You know, they most filmmakers who are making movies have have had enough training to know how important sound is to the movie. Um, they may on their first film they might make some bad choices and have like a, a dialogue scene next to a waterfall, but they're never going to do that again. Right, they do that <laughs> once maybe. And uh, Martin Scorsese did that in a scene, a movie that I worked on with him, where he had an open fire hydrant. And it's not, it's in the wide shot, but it's not in the coverage. And I'm like, hmm, could it turn that off? Yeah. So that scene was cut. So you're not going to make that choice Mistake again. twice. Yeah, exactly. And with Joel and Ethan, we had kind of a pact where we would try to get, with Peter's help, a good, clean take that was suitable in terms of performance and style of every line in the every scripted line, um, everything that mattered, including nonverbal stuff, movements, actions. And they know that, um, you know, as Ethan will say, we can always fix that later. Don't worry about those cars. We can always get Skip to do those and et cetera. <laughs> we had, um, they have in, in many of their films, cars going by in the background. So when they were doing Fargo, I said, hey, why don't you get like a nice kid from the local film school and just have him record, you know, all day long while you're rolling. Okay, cool. And so they did. And they had a nice track for this, the car dealership where Bill Macy worked. There's a window and out the window, you can see these cars whizzing by. Right. So um, they sent over the, uh, the, the, uh, their edited track. And some of that stuff was in there and some of it wasn't. And we went digging. We found out that they didn't roll on all those takes. <laughs> so we had nice car buys for some scenes and not for others. So I sent it back over and I said, oh, there's been a mistake because uh, you selected some of the takes that don't have the car buys. So you're going to have to go back and recut this. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well. They said, yeah. They, they did the donkey laugh. So um, anyway, the, the idea is... Um, okay, I don't know if filmmakers are just a lot more clever or audio is so much better than it ever was, but um, the recordings that we get these days are so much better, I I think, and I don't really understand. The, the gear is quite similar. Mm -hmm. We're using digital recorders instead of Nagras, but Nagras always sounded pretty great. They're a bit noisy, mm -hmm. but they, they can take uh, level and t they can make some great sounding tracks, but... Uh, I don't know what something has changed. So, and I think, and I want to say that it's because filmmakers know how important audio is and dread the process of re redoing audio. Right. That's spoiled for in any way. And I think, um, thanks God that uh, by the time you know here we are, that people actually care enough to get great recordings uh, of the performances during the production. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, I think that leads the filmmakers to like a certain knowledge about the way things are going to go, things, the way things should be and what's important. And it's really, in a way, it's just like an out-of-focus shot. You know, do you want an out-of-focus shot in your movie? Right. If you shot an out-of-focus shot, would you put it in the movie? Right. If there was a whole scene that was out-of-focus, would you reshoot that scene? I mean, I don't think you have to tell any film student or on up the answer to that. Those that series of questions sure. is well known. Yeah. So, um, and we and we do have, and I have to say, you know, as much as we know about ADR and how to make it seem right, um, it's really difficult to reproduce the performances. And I don't want to blame it on the actors. A lot of the stuff that we come up with. It sounds good, but it doesn't match, you know, or or the performance is right, but the sound is wrong. Or sometimes the production sound is, is kind of quirky, and mm -hmm. so the studio recording doesn't match, you know. And filmmakers compo complain, um, 
hey, you know, why can't we do this after all this time? How come we don't know how to do that? We can do visually, we can do anything. Right. Why can't we do the same thing with audio? Don't know the answer. <laughs> but I do, I think filmmakers know it, especially young filmmakers know that um, they need to get good, they need to either get really good audio or they need to figure out how to, to not have good audio. Right. Like that scene can be just music now and don't worry about what they were saying or say yeah. it in voiceover or something. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I, it, it is, um, it's daunting. It's hard to be, um, unless you're the Coen brothers and it's scripted and then you shoot the script and you make the actors do what's on the page. You know, that, that works. That works really good. That works every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about the Coens and the way they write the scripts, but, you know, and we've talked about this, but those great sound design moments in the Coen Brothers movies, they don't happen by accident on the mixing stage. They've thought about that. They, they, they thought about that when they were writing it. They shot it in a way that created opportunities for you to do great sound design. You know, it's, it's, uh, they understand that, how to use that as a tool. Yeah, and I think if you look at the great filmmakers of all time, like Jacques Tati comes to mind, where you know the movie is being made as a safe place to put the sound, you know, and that not everyone's doing that. Let's just say, yeah, <laughs> it's usually quite the opposite, <laughs> unsafe place to put the sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's hard a lot of times, and you know, when you, when stuff gets loud, being able to hear the words and to have loud sound effects and loud music. Is not easy. Yeah. And especially when the script says, and the creature stands and roars uh, a sound which has never before been heard in the universe in the history of mankind, and there's a person talking there. That's not going to go well. Yeah. Tell me about your um, kind of your creative explorations around Dolby Atmos. Um, you, you've obviously you've done a lot of work with Alfonso Cuarón, who seems to em embrace a very bold uh, approach with Atmos in terms of you know I'm thinking about the work in Gravity and also in Roma, just the the way you guys you know panned especially dialogue around in the space. But what do you? How did you sort of? What was your first experience with Atmos? Was it a tool that sort of that you embraced right away, or did it take a while to kind of get into the groove of it? Uh, my first experience was uh, Gravity, and um, Atmos was up and running, and Gary had done some things in uh, Brave. Is that what it's called? Brave was the Pixar film, which was the first movie that was released in Atmos, yes. Right. And um, Atmos, we, it wasn't ready for us, and we couldn't really do it at um, Delane Lee. I don't think we had the tools or the recorder or anything, really, in that year. That was the end of 2000. And 12? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the movie, luckily, what coincidentally, wasn't done yet. So uh, they needed a few more months into the spring. And um, um, Warner Brothers chose to delay the, the uh, release till the fall of 2013, by which time the basic uh, Pro Tools uh, software was happening. We could at least use um, uh, the the uh, first version was a, we used an external uh, joystick, uh, JL Cooper, mm -hmm. to do the panning. And, um, but uh, we had uh, the gear, we had a recorder, we had a way of getting it on the film. We had uh, Nick, Nick Watkins and uh, Brian, oh shoot, what's Brian's last name? Works in L.A. He we'll was cut. fantastic. Uh, oh, Brian Pennington. Pennington, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great, and I had known him for years. But man, did he blossom in that Atmos environment! He was so excited by what were the the possibilities, and yeah, um, that's when I that on that very first project is when I found out, discovered, thanks to Brian, basically that how simple it was to use and how. Uh, elemental it could become and how we could make uh, Atmos a part of every movie really you know you can of course you can use a little bit of gray or a lot of gray and still make a gray thing and even the Coens who are not big on surround sound were interested in a little Atmos for for uh, Macbeth but uh, yeah it's it's um, 
it can be a, a thing for each type of movie, any any movie. Yeah. And um, so learning how, how elegantly um, simple it is uh, on Gravity made it simple. We just effortlessly plug it into everything. And, do you ever get questions from producers about like, well, why do we have to, why do we need to do Atmos on this on, on this movie? Do you ever do, do producers ever push back on you about that? It, they always approach it in the same basic way, which is um, this is going to cost me more money. In a way, it's we agree on that. Actually, they they basically say, you know, these are our requirements. I don't know how you're going to do them in two days, and <laughs> and that's about it. They don't really care. The producers who've been in this room and enjoyed Atmos mixes are thrilled with what we're doing. And they don't come to the 7151 two-track version. I wish I didn't go to them either. But <laughs> we keep squishing them down. And at least now we have a home theater on yeah. Atmos. So um, we can enjoy that step. And sometimes we do that in one of the other rooms that in the building which are small and more like a living room and um, some of the filmmakers want to know what's going to happen and some of them don't want to know what's going to happen but um, aside from you know the individual circumstances that we were pretty comfortable knowing that stuff will pass from big atmos to little atmos to 5171 and uh, the producers have ceased asking me, you know, like one producer once said, why do we, why do we work in stereo? What's this whole stereo thing? And I said, I couldn't believe I said this. Well, we have two years. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. So um, anyway, th that question doesn't come at us anymore. I mean, it's so universal now that right. the the idea of trying to get out of it or uh, have a debate about it is that ship is that train has sailed as they say yeah i i'm just curious for uh, you know uh, the business has changed so much and the kind of the uh, uh, the the movies that i think about that you worked on you know it, it feels like those are getting fewer and farther between in terms of major you know thoughtful adult studio movies um, you're st obviously you work with a, with a handful of directors who are still able to get those movies made, but um, where do you like wh where do you see our business going in terms of like obviously as more and more of these movies go to streaming platforms, does that change approach to sound at all for you? It definitely does, and there is definitely a pressure from the streaming people to do the streaming version first. We we've always like we were saying go with the biggest version first, and then squishing it down to the subsequent versions is almost always easier. And the filmmakers are more aware, you know, that there's less concerns and questions because it, it becomes a smaller version. And the, the idea of it being set up to, to be a version that plays at home is embraced by everyone. That's a universal thing. Mm -hmm. And the filmmakers who um, don't want to be party to that can just leave. Right. They, they don't mind, you know, they're not going to go with the audience to their homes and watch it in their home theaters. They may go to the premiere and the, to a preview or to a screening somewhere, but and in those versions, it'll sound like this room. So um, there is a, um, there isn't a, an innocence about it. The innocence is long gone. Right, so it's it's fully known and accepted. I um, mean, it's it's part of the process. It's like getting up early in the morning on the when you're the director. Yeah. Marty said that the the driver wakes me up and gives me my first cup of coffee at six a.m. and at six o one I answer my first question, <laughs> and I spend the rest of the day answering questions until the driver takes me back home. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, an inertia and a momentum to the process. And the filmmakers know, I mean, part of part of handling them is making them know that that's all we're trying to do is make the movie as good as it can be, right. helping them in any way we can. Crucially part of the formula. So, 
And part of that is even though a movie might be going to a streaming platform, ultimately you're still going to make a big mix with all of the dynamic, you know, choice, you know, the bold dynamics choices in a space like this that you would normally. You know, that part, we still don't really have that dialed in, in my opinion. I mean, we still, the theatrical mixes are, are pretty big because they can be. And the home theater versions are maybe uh, too big. We, we're not, I don't think we're totally um, capable of, in a very systematic way, reducing a theatrical big movie into a okay-sounding home theater version. Mm -hmm. And there's some things, I mean, I made theatrical versions, uh, home theater versions for filmmakers who just say, yeah, just put that back, and I'll tell the studio that I told you to do that. Mm. And so we end up just giving them the theatrical version. And... So that plays in home theaters turned down sure. a lot. Well, where people are riding the volume up and down because up and down, sure, right? And um, it kind of it it sort of defeats the purpose, but it's it's like I think it's a passing of time, and I think more 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 and more older filmmakers and younger filmmakers will embrace the idea and see like right now theatrical movie theaters is not the be all end all, right? Um, if we can get three weeks in a theater before the DVD drops, I mean the home theater streaming version drops, uh, we're feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. Um, if we can get the movie studios to continue to make movies, to go into theaters, if we can keep the lights on in the theaters around the country, around the world. I Personally, to me, it looks like we're in a transition period that might last quite some time. Yeah. You know, just it might be years before the next wave of young filmmakers are making movies that go into movie theaters. You know, with that intention. Uh, well, and maybe in the future, people will want to be at home in their home theater. Right. And movie theaters will become more of an iconic experience, like going to an amusement park or something. Right. But it's certainly like right now, there aren't very many movies being made that aren't Marvel, DC type movies. And um, obviously that, like you were saying, that whole range of 20 to $30 million dramas and comedies are just, they're just not making those right now. Or they're being made for- For the platform. Streaming. Yeah. Right, right. You've done a lot of documentary work in addition to narrative you know, features. Do you change? Does the does the approach to the sound work change for documentary versus narrative for you? Well, it does in the in the kind of intention. I mean, it's sort of like long form. You know, the the like uh, I haven't worked on very many TV shows, but the few that I have is there's just not much time. So mm -hmm. you know, we're kind of burning through putting in sound a few sound effects here and there, and putting the music and dialogue in order, and then you're moving on. And I think. Um, Documentaries have a similar kind of uh, glue that keeps them going. And, you know, it's the talking and the music in most cases. I'm thinking of Errol Morris, who I work with a lot. Mm -hmm. So we do a, a lot of fun sounds, and he's really into sound design. But even so, it's mostly talking and music. Yeah. And so I guess that's the short answer. Yeah. And I've... <laughs> I haven't worked on very many. I've worked on some some very abstract documentaries that aren't that don't have an awful lot of talking, mm -hmm. but they're still kind of um, they're almost like uh, um, verite, right? You know, not quite so scripted. That's got to be fun. It's fantastic, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> when I knew I was going to sit down and talk with you, uh, I put out on social media a call oh. for some questions, uh -oh. and I got I got I got some good ones. Hmm. Someone who goes by the name Cohen Bruins. I don't know what that means, but this is an interesting question. I would okay. love I would love to know if Skip likes to work with sound recorders who record sync sound with MS stereo or surround ambisonic microphones. Whoa, well that is quite a center of debate in the sound recording community. And from we've tried this a few times to do um, random stereo ads to boom miking situations uh, with Todd Maitland mm -hmm. actually and um, on the set and I've been on the set I hate going to the set because it's so uh, awful 
And on the set, it's so awful because everything is more important than sound on the set. And there's a lot of people who are very stressed out on a set because there's there's a lot of money being spent every every second as that meter runs. And who are you? Right. What are you doing here? How did you even get here? <laughs> who let you? Par- where did you park? You know. <laughs> and so, even with the Coens, and I've been to their set many times. You know, there's a lot of people looking at me and whispering and pointing, and eventually someone will come over to me and say, "Who are you? Who and are, are you doing it? Yeah, you know." So, um, what works best, I think, in my experience, is a good boom and a good love for each line. So we we try to we encourage people to get one or two booms close enough so that the so that they're in the shot and they have to be told to get out of the shot. Mm-hmm. We even like the idea of putting a blue windscreen on the mic and so that when they're doing all the other things to that shot, they can just paint that out. Sure. People have tried that. That's not popular, but it's a great idea. Yeah. And then, then when you get to multi-miking, um, unfortunately, a lot of things don't fit that like dialogue almost always is connected to a person so whether they're you're panning it like we did in Roma or it's just you know uh, being associated with whose head is on screen um, you can add a little reverb to that but generally people want it to be kind of point source right so uh, multi-mic recordings of dialogue unless you're doing like um, Roma or uh the robe or something where it's been set up to be done that way is um, it leads you to having a lot of recordings some of which are not very good and maybe not the one good recording that you needed that you would have gotten if you had a lob and a boom so uh, like I watch Peter work I see the pain that he goes through to get good takes and someday there there will be a, a Tesla robot that can record multi-multi mics of everything and still get good takes. But, okay, the other downside is that Atmos is mono and stereo right now. Right. And taking an ambisonics recording, a multi-channel recording, and putting it into Atmos means we have to break it apart and choose some pieces. And I would never discourage people. I like the idea that people are exploring that, but um, especially for music. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. But um, I think um, a great stereo recording can go a long way. A couple of great stereo recordings can be almost as interesting as a great ambisonics recording. Hmm. So, and far more easier to make. Well, I think let's wrap up with a, a question from your buddy, Rui Garcia, who wants to know, where do you find good mezcal in London? <laughs> We're going to be working together soon. Uh, I'm going to have to go to London and get you some proper tequila. Although mezcal is my poison, but there is a really great store in Soho right uh, around the corner from Delane Lee. So if you are in Soho at Delane Lee, ask them where the Scotch store is, and they have a ton of good stuff in that store. I was shocked when I went in there. Okay, so we worked on Gravity. Richard Beggs and I were the Americans, and Alfonso was Alfonso, and everyone else working on the crew were were Brits, and they were not happy about us, (laughs) me in particular. (laughs) And Alfonso was away, and we had to put the movie together and get it going. We actually made a version so that when he arrived, we could play the movie. Mm -hmm. And the day he arrived, he arrived in the afternoon, um, I said, okay, today at lunchtime, Everyone, please go get your drink. So we're going to have a little bar. I know Alfonso likes mezcal. I'll get some mezcal for him. And I don't know how much he's drinking now, but um, we'll have a little bar. Okay, so then at the end of each day, we'll have a little cocktail, and we'll look at each other in the eye and toast and get it out. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then that day will end on a proper note, and then the next day we can start again. Yeah. So I went to that store, and I was, uh, you could not imagine what they had in that store. Just like levels upon levels. Just when you thought you'd seen it, 
more than you could imagine. There was another room, another <laughs> whole room. So I bought some mezcal, I bought some cognac and some proper tequila and some uh, Macallans and such. And we set up a little bar and everything was good. And uh, those guys didn't bring anything. Really ever. I mean, one of the guys brought in some I'm sure they were happy to drink your booze. They, they drank our... We, we, we did what we wanted, but I paid. <laughs> anyway, there, it's right in... So it's essentially across the park from Dolby. All right. Well, Rui, you heard it. <laughs> That's where you go to get your mezcal in London. Skip, it's great sitting down and talking with you again. It's, it's always fun to spend time. Fantastic seeing you. Absolutely. We should do this more often. Absolutely. I, this is my first time in New York in almost two years. So hopefully... Well, the, now that the plague is over... Well, yeah, we're over the plague, at least, for that's for sure. <laughs> well, we're ignoring the plague. Exactly. Say. Exactly. All right, Skip. Well, thanks so much. This was, this was great fun. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers, mate. Well, thank you once again to my friend Skip Livesay for coming on the uh, Dolby Institute podcast and talking to us. If you're not already, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thank you for listening to us. This is Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.